In 2016, the Bar of Ireland held a series of lectures celebrating the role of barristers and the courts at key junctures in the history of our state. The lectures included an examination of pivotal trials and some important legal personalities that figured in Ireland's struggle for independence. Under the guidance of the then Bar Council Chair, now Mr Justice David Barneville of the High Court, a range of legal luminaries presented at Green Street Courthouse near Smithfield Market here in Dublin 7. Today, we are delighted to bring these informative and engaging lectures to you in a different format and for a wider audience. In the first of the series, the trial of Robert Emmett, delivered by the late Mr Justice Adrian Hardiman, with an introduction by David Barnable. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, on behalf of the Bar Council and the Bar of Ireland, I want to welcome you all to this, the first lecture, looking at the role of the barrister in famous and, in some cases, infamous criminal trials. Each of these lectures will look at important criminal trials in our history or at the role that members of the Irish Bar played in them, whether that be a good role or, in some cases, a bad role, as we will hear. I'm particularly pleased that the first lecture in this series is being delivered by Mr Justice Hardiman, and it's on the trial of Robert Emmett, a subject which he has researched in great detail and on which he has extensively lectured over the years. The theme of this lecture series and this lecture is significant. While we're living in a time of great change, not merely in the legal profession and at the bar, but in society in general, it's important that we remember who we are as barristers and the important role that we play in the administration of justice and in preserving and upholding the rule of law. Sometimes said, always by members of the criminal bar, that the only real barristers in practice are those who practice in crime. There is perhaps some little truth in that. Um, it's fitting, I think, that we're holding uh, this lecture series, all six of them, here in Green Street. This court is hugely important in the life of the Irish Bar. Criminal trials were held here from 1797 uh, until uh, sometime in the late 1990s, I think 1998. The Central Criminal Court sat here for many years, and from the 1970s, the Special Criminal Court sat here, while at the same time, the court was used for jury trials in the Central Criminal Court and in the Circuit Court. Uh, because of the nature and type of cases heard in this court, the death sentence would have been passed on many occasions. Apart from being sent up once to do a consent adjournment in a non-jury motion, I never ran any trial here myself, still less any criminal trial. But I am told um, by those who did that criminal trials held here had a certain edge, had a particular tension, an additional degree of tension perhaps compared with cases and trials heard in other courts. And this in turn imposed an additional responsibility and burden on those members of the bar who were defending and prosecuting criminal cases here. In many cases, the outcome of the case for the defendant was literally a matter of life and death. The bar is often criticized for being set in its ways or for being stuck in its traditions. That's not necessarily so, but as a profession, the best of our traditions do matter, and we should make no apology for sticking to them. I'm talking here about the essential, the essential and central attributes shown by barristers, courage, independence, which we must all display in acting in the best interests of our clients. We should make no apologies for continuing to uphold those essential uh, traditions and attributes. Um, before handing over to Mr. Justice Hardiman, I do want to thank a number of people, and I might as well do so now. I particularly want to thank Shane Murphy, whose inspiration, really, this series of lectures was. Um, he did an enormous amount of the groundwork. He did the cajoling and the persuading of all of the speakers who've agreed to deliver lectures in this series. And without Shane, uh, these uh, lectures would not have happened. I want to also thank Rose Fisher in the Bar Council administration and Shirley Coulter and uh, Kira Murphy of the Bar Council also. I'm just about to hand over to Mr. Justice Hardiman, but before inviting him to do so, I, I'm going to do what many people do at the beginning of speeches and say, Mr. Justice Hardiman is a man who requires no introduction. 
So I'm now going to just briefly introduce him. Um, Mr. Justice Hardiman was, when at the bar, one of the finest advocates and orators of his generation in practice at the bar. He was called to the bar in 1974 and took silk in 1989. Some 11 years later, he was appointed directly to the Supreme Court in 2000. Since taking up his position on that court, both in that court and in the former Court of Criminal Appeal, he's been involved in hearing, I think, most, if not all, of the important criminal and constitutional cases dealt with by those, uh, by those courts. Uh, he has spoken extensively on topics of uh, law and history and law and literature. He's spoken on the particular topic that he's going to speak to you uh, on this afternoon on a number of previous occasions. I could go on, but I might be accused of making a retirement speech for Mr. Justice Hardiman, and I can assure you that is not what I am intending to do. I want to thank him for giving his time to come and speak with us and to deliver what I know will be an inspiring lecture. Those of you may have heard him give a lecture on this similar theme a number of years ago, but I am assured that his further researchers will disclose and reveal some interesting twists that many will not have heard before. So could I ask please to, to welcome Mr. Justice Hardiman to deliver this lecture. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I really couldn't but uh, address this topic because it's connected for me with various things to do in particular uh, with uh, two of my devils and indeed with my uh, former master, Hugh O'Flaherty, who delivered a memorable uh, aperçu, shall we say, on one of the principal characters we'll be discussing. Now, uh, David is quite right. I've always had an interest in history and indeed started my career by studying history with Paul O'Higgins uh, and various other uh, present luminaries of the legal profession. I needn't discuss the nature of the ambitions and aspirations that made me turn from that to the uh, law. But to mention a very obvious historical fact, 2003 was the bicentenary of the trial and execution of Robert Emmett. The trial took place on the 19th of September. Uh, 1803 in this very room and the execution the following day in Thomas Street. Uh, Emmett was not a barrister. The reason he wasn't a barrister, because he intended to be such, was that he was expelled from Trinity College by Lord Clare's visitation after the 1798 rebellion because, in those days anyway, you needed to be a graduate to get into the King's Inns. He couldn't get into the King's Inns and therefore didn't take uh, his uh, ambitions in that direction any further. But uh, his, an older brother who was dead by the time of the trial, Christopher Emmett, seemed to have become a very distinguished barrister and took silk at the age of 25, which was even then, no doubt, something of an achievement. Uh, and uh, his other brother, Thomas Adesemus, uh, also an older brother, uh, who had qualified as a doctor and practiced in partnership with his father, uh, had abandoned that way of life to become a barrister, apparently with political uh, motives in mind. He uh, departed from Ireland after 1798, after spending some time in prison in Scotland, and uh, became, at a later stage, about 1817, Attorney General of New York. Emmett's uh, father, Dr. Thomas Ennis, he was what we would now call an obstetrician. But that wasn't a mainstream branch of the medical profession then, and he was somewhat bitterly referred to by one of his medical colleagues as the second best man midwife in Dublin. <laughs> you, you may note the tendency of the medical profession uh, not to uh, speak well of each other. <laughs> it subsisted even then. Now, in 2003, uh, Hugh Mowen, uh, my devil many years previously, was the chairman of the bar, and he was determined 
that the bicentenary would be celebrated by the bar in an appropriate way. Felt that Emmett had been badly treated by the profession, and as you will see, he certainly was, by solicitors, barristers and judges. Back in, in the run-up to his trial, he had been firstly abandoned by his chosen defence counsel, though there may have been a good reason for that, and left in the hands of his junior counsel, Leonard McNally, who was a, a paid agent of Dublin Castle. He'd received a secret pension from them since the year 1794 until his death in 1820. And on his death, his wife and son petitioned, apparently successfully, for a continuation of the secret pension. The full details of his pension, of his corruption, there is no other word for it, were discovered by Dr. Fitzpatrick, a 19th century uh, nationalist historian, but there doesn't seem to be any reason whatever to doubt it. Incidentally, I found that for money values at that time, a multiplication by 70 will get you somewhere into the uh, real value. The aperçu uh, by uh, uh, my former master, Hugh O'Flaherty, on this topic was, he told me when I was an innocent and idealistic young barrister, he told me that whenever he heard of the glorious traditions of the Irish bar, he thought of Leonard McNally. <laughs> and, that made me look at some of the radical lawyers of the day in quite a different way. <laughs> the most conspicuous of the seven counsel who appeared for the prosecution was William Cunningham Plunkett. Plunkett became, by the end of his long life, the most successful Irish careerist and nepotist of the 19th century. No fewer than three of his sons were on the bench of bishops by the time of his death in 1854. He was obviously, you would have thought, six barristers led by the Attorney General might have been enough to uh, get the case home, but Plunkett was given a supernumerary brief, obviously totally superfluous to need. And he took this brief uh, for a particular purpose, which might be emolliently called career development on his part. Plunkett had been an anti-union MP in the old and notoriously corrupt Irish House of Commons before 1800. He had opposed the union tooth and nail and said he hoped to die shedding his blood to bring down the union. He offered to shed his children's blood as well, but he may not have had their consent for that generous offer. In any event, the government of the day were absolutely triumphant in getting Plunkett on board for the prosecution. He'd taken the brief, the Chief Secretary reported to London, even though he hadn't previously been associated with the government. And he did so, the Chief Secretary rather gloatingly continued, on purpose to show his entire and unqualified renunciation of all his former principles. <laughs> his determination on long and mature reflection to support the Union after having been its inveterate opposer and to stand or fall with the present government. Well, the Chief Secretary added, he said, you may naturally suppose, he's addressing the Home Secretary in England, you may naturally suppose that this is the prelude to a closer connection and I am sure it will be the death blow to the anti-union party at the bar. So you can see that in those days uh, there wasn't a rigid separation between political considerations and professional appearances. Plunkett then, having taken the brief for, as I say, career development reasons, then caused astonishment, I think even to his own side, by exercising the Crown's right of reply, even though the defence, as we shall see, had neither called evidence nor addressed the jury. But he launched a savage attack on Emmett, particularly resented because he had been a friend of Emmett's older brother, the gentleman whom I mentioned who had gone to America after 1798. But there was an upside from his point of view before the year 
uh, was over. He had been appointed Solicitor General. He became Attorney General after the brief interval of Whig government in 1806 to 7, and continued to have a remarkable career, uh, including 10 years as Lord Chancellor. And uh, I may mention one of the more vivid passages of it, if time permits. Now, the prosecution was led by the Attorney General Standish O'Grady, uh, who was party, together with the other members of the government, to an extraordinary scheme to prevent Emmett from making any defence at all. And the detail of that is, is quite interesting, I'll discuss it in a moment, but basically it consisted of a threat to prosecute his enamorata, girlfriend, whatever you care to use, Sarah Curran, for treason, if uh, any such attempt was made. Um, the Crown Solicitor was also involved in this scheme, and unfortunately it's evident from an analysis of the trial that the presiding judge, Lord Norbury, was also aware of it and made a pointless reference to it at any time the defence showed any sign of life at all. <laughs> um, Lord Norbury, who was a flamboyant character, if not a particularly admirable one, was described by Daniel O'Connell in a way that no contemporary could possibly speak about a judge as judicial bully, butcher and buffoon. <laughs> um, on the other hand, the former Chief Secretary, whose name was Charles Abbott, described him as scarcely fit for the office which he holds, but on the other hand, very pliable. Now, as I say, for, for, I'm sorry, I should say that it appears that Leonard McNally's family were aware of his secret pension. This was 300 a year, as I mentioned, and he was paid a special bonus of 200 in the year of the Ebbett trial, 100 of which was paid five days before the trial, and no doubt the other hundreds uh, not long afterwards. Um, now, it seems that Mrs. McNally and the son were the people who approached the then, then Lord Lieutenant, whose name was Wellesley, brother of the Duke of Wellington, in 1820, with a view to getting the uh, pension continued. Uh, Wellesley uh, wrote a note, and a lot of this information comes from the correspondence that the Irish government wrote to England. Wellesley wrote a, an apparently horrified letter. He said, it appears that my predecessor has committed me to a policy of which no gentleman could approve. Well, indeed. Now, uh, in 2003, in any event, Hugh Mowen asked me to do this paper, which I did happily. Uh, I think uh, Hugh uh, intended it in part as an act of amends or atonement. I'm very glad to revisit these themes today. The original paper was later published in a UCD book uh, on the subject, uh, and it was concerned with the trial and the execution in their historical context as historical events. What I'm going to say this afternoon is much more narrowly focused on the legal aspects. So uh, it must be said that in the, the historical persona of Emmett, the trial is very largely ignored and is just treated as the stage on which the famous speech was made. And uh, there is no doubt the speech dominated the posthumous reception of Emmett and led to him being a much more influential person after his death than he was during his life. And there's a British historian called Marianne Elliott who's written a book on that particular topic and a very striking book it is. So as I say, Emmett was tried here in this room uh, on uh, the 19th of September, 1803, in a trial that went on all day uh, without any intermission and during the whole of which uh, Emmett was chained. Um, he was found guilty by the jury without leaving the witness box and executed the next day in Thomas Street. Um, in all received versions of Emmett's rebellion, 
The trial, as I say, is relegated to the occasion for the speech. And the speech was one of the great uh, orations of the 19th century. We know that because it featured in the books of great speeches, which were very commonly put together in the 19th century. I was deeply impressed to discover that when an American senator wrote to Abraham Lincoln, just as the Civil War was ending, seeking clemency for a young Confederate officer who'd been convicted of espionage, he said to him, quite casually really, he said his speech at the court-martial was magnificent, he said, fully equal to Emmett's famous defence. And it was clear that he knew about it and he expected the president would know about it without further uh, explanation. Uh, it's often thought that the case against Emmett was one of irresistible strength, so that, for example, the corruption of his leading defence counsel, although morally deplorable, made no difference in practice. Um, contemporary records including from the very heart of the prosecution, disproved this, both in terms of the evidence that was available and of the applicable law. Now, my fundamental thesis is that Emmett was condemned to death after what was essentially a show trial. His nominated counsel was John Philpot Curran, and he was compelled to withdraw on the instructions of the government uh, under threat of having his daughter's liaison with Emmett exposed. And indeed, it's hard to see that he wasn't heavily compromised by the events uh, of, of the relationship between Sarah Curran and Robert Emmett. It's a sad, Curran was one of the big losers from this whole thing. In the year 1806, as I mentioned, after 30 years of Tory government, the Whigs got back in, in an administration called the Government of All the Talents. It was happy days for the Irish Whigs. There was jobs for almost everybody. But there was no job for Curran, even though he had soldiered in the vineyard of opposition all that time. The Whig grandees in London absolutely wouldn't have him in any office, either legal or political, because of his daughter's involvement with Emmett. Henry Grattan, who doesn't have the reputation of having been a humorist, actually was because when he was being attacked, or when the Whig leader, a man called Ponsonby, was being attacked for not getting a job for John Philpott Curran, uh, Grattan said, perhaps he could be made an Irish bishop, uh, but it would appear that not even that uh, was available. McNally uh, stepped into the breach when Curran couldn't, uh, had to withdraw, or did withdraw. Uh, it was quite predictable that he would do so because his son was the solicitor uh, in the case. All of these men were what would now be called radical lawyers, the sort of people you would expect to be employed in a case like that. Uh, McNally's reports to the Crown, both before and after the trial, are still extant. And he simply told them everything Emmett uh, had said. He told them what his plans were. He told them uh, how he felt about the case and how his obsession was in making sure that Sarah Curran wasn't exposed and perhaps uh, prosecuted. Um, the, the Attorney General, as we'll see, told Emmett at a meeting they had in Dublin Castle that the letters were evidence of treason against the person who wrote them, as well as against Emmett himself. Um, the government, although Emmett, it must be said, offered it, the government came to an agreement that if they could produce the letters without uh, objection, they would conceal both the name of the correspondent and indeed the fact that she was a woman. And that is exactly what happened, uh, as we shall see. The other point that arose was that Emmett was executed under the Treason Act of 1351, the same act under which Roger Casement was executed more than a century later. But the law of treason was dictated by Lord Norbury to the jury in a way radically different to recent English authority, um, and in a way which made conviction 
virtually a certainty. The trial needs to be put in the political context, which I'll do as briefly as possible. The government of Ireland was led by Philip York, Lord Hardwick, and a man called William Wickham as Chief Secretary. York or Hardwick was the older brother of a man uh, called York, Charles York, who was the Home Secretary in England. So he had a close connection to the English government of Addington. Um, Wickham had been the British spymaster during the first 10 years of the French wars since 1793. He'd fetched up in Ireland, where nobody of any significance in England ever wanted to come, but he'd fetched up in Ireland because attempts to make him a diplomat, an ambassador, had been refused by various countries who declared him persona non grata because he had been a spy. So it must have been pretty notorious that his previous occupation had had related to undercover activities. Um, the government was completely caught napping by Emmett's rebellion. It wasn't for the drunkenness and indiscipline of his men, which unfortunately was the conspicuous aspect of the rebellion, he could have walked into Dublin Castle. This was the cause of suspicion and rage by the English government. Hardwick's very survival was probably due to the position of his brother. A big source for all that happened before the trial is the correspondence between the brothers and their respective officials. They made it quite clear that London expected a dramatic execution of a significant person to show that law and order had been restored. The government had, in fact, hung upwards of 40 people, but as Wickham said, they were all miserably poor, and it was plain that none of them could possibly be the leader. They were desperate to find a prominent and preferably a Protestant victim on whom the rebellion could be blamed. I say Protestant because opinion of the day was such that it could not be accepted that the Catholics left to themselves could have organised a rebellion which, at least in the planning stage, seemed formidable. <laughs> now, Emmett, unlike those people who had been hanged before his trial, he had escaped from Dublin after the failed rebellion. There was no hue and cry for him specifically. They didn't know the name of the magnificently uniformed character who had read a proclamation and led this motley group onto Thomas Street. He was captured in Harold's Cross on the 26th of August. And here, there are just a few things important to remember. The rebellion was the 23rd of July. He was captured on the 26th of August. And the trial was the 19th of uh, September with the execution the following day. Now, he, he was arrested by Major Sir, the town major, i.e. the chief of police of the city. And it was immediately clear to him that he was a person of consequence. Uh, there were a large number of documents seized from him, including correspondence with the French government, in which Emmett assumed the position of a potentate fully the equal of Napoleon. Uh, and, of course, there was the fatal correspondence, the letters from Sarah Curran. Each and every one of those letters contained a command that it should be immediately burnt. None of them were. Now, it took some time to identify him as Robert Emmett, the brother of Thomas Addis Emmett, the United Irish man of 1798, and who had been expelled from Trinity, basically as a suspect person. In the days after his arrest, Emmett and the castle eyed each other suspiciously. They both had problems, but at least at first, the, neither knew the other's problem. Dwarfing everything in uh, Emmett's mind, it was the topic of which, according to McNally, his mind was wholly fixed, was the fact that he had been in possession of the unsigned letters from Sarah Curran. They are love letters, but they're cryptically expressed in places, and there's a great number of references to numbers in them. And that led the government to believe 
that they were letters in code on uh, military uh, questions. They could see that they were written by a woman, but they believed that some female sympathiser, a random person, had, had written them. There's no doubt the letter showed an absolute familiarity with Emmett's plans, and it condemned those who, by their barbarous desertion and want of unanimity, had led to its failure. According to McNally, he thought of nothing else but the letters and how to prevent them coming forward. Now, by an extraordinary irony, and we know this because the Irish government felt obliged to explain it to the English government, by an extraordinary irony, when the government read the letters in Dublin Castle, they uh, did not, they believed that they were, as I say, coded letters. They believed that the language of a love intrigue has been assumed as a means of misleading the government and that they were military communications. They did not think for a moment that Sarah Curran uh, had written them. Must be remembered that her father was an immensely prominent figure uh, at that time, and she lived with them in, in Ratfarnham. But the government were immensely excited at the idea of portraying Emmett, a, uh, an educated Protestant capable of planning treasons, stratagems and spoils, uh, and from a family with a revolutionary tradition as the linchpin of the rebellion. But they were preoccupied by the fact that they had no hard evidence against him. Wickham writes to the Home Secretary in England saying that if they put him on trial, he may well be acquitted. The real mystery of the case is how between the 8th of September, when Wickham expresses pessimism about the case, says he may well be acquitted and says that they have thought of bringing forward a secret source of information, which I think was probably McNally, but that it would be better for Emmett to be acquitted than for the secret source to be silenced uh, forevermore. But between that date and the 19th of September, which is less than a fortnight later, the case had become, uh, again in the Chief Secretary's words, the most complete case of treason that was ever presented in a court. And how that happened in so short a time is the subject of, of interest. Uh, as I say, on, on Wickham corresponded very frankly with the government in England. He said, we firmly believe that he was the leader of the rebellion, but we cannot prove it. And he said, there is a difficulty getting witnesses because, and this is the way he put it, Emmett was very beloved in private life. In other words, he was a popular man. Um, he also said that they cannot bring a, a case based on the documents because the documents appear to have been written by four or five different people. They cannot get handwriting evidence, that is. Um, the, he expressed amazement that the Wemmett had lived all his life in Dublin and had been educated at the college, as he put it. No one would identify all the documents as his. And the, uh, the, the wording of uh, some of the letters uh, is interesting. He, um, he discusses the fact that there is this possibility of bringing forward secret information. And he says they have discussed it long and anxiously, and they, that is the Irish government, consists of about eight or nine people, uh, are unanimous that it is not worth convicting Emmett by revealing their uh, most secret source. Um, he, 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 the letter is full of protestation along the lines of how hard they've tried to find evidence and the fact that they can't do it. Now, this letter, it says that there is a grave danger that Emmett will be acquitted. But that, of course, didn't, uh, didn't happen. Um, the words, he said, that the question of bringing forward secret information has been well considered and discussed, and there is but one opinion, viz, that it were a thousand times better that Emmett should escape than we should close forever this most accurate source of information. 
Now, it has to be said, Dublin in the 1790s and early 19th century was full of spies and informers, and people who would like to be spies and informers because it was a very lucrative occupation. More lucrative, for instance, than being an unsuccessful barrister. Uh, there were 2,000 members of the bar in the year 1800. One could only imagine uh, the difficult plight of, of some of them, and some of them indeed did feature uh, amongst the numerous spies and informers. The description there appears to me to fish Leonard McNally, but of course it can't be positively proved uh, uh, that it was he. Uh, it was a source from whom they obviously had expectations of further information, and uh, the, the possibility certainly exists. Now, what happened to Emmett then was that he was brought for an interrogation. This was not like a detention in a police station under Section 4. He was brought to a drawing room in Dublin Castle where he was questioned by the Lord Chancellor, the Lord Lieutenant, the Chief Secretary, the Under Secretary, and various people of that sort. And the conversation was in many ways very amiable. Emmett refused to say anything. They tried hard to get him to say something. They made the point that his brother had sung like a canary when he was arrested in uh, 1798. They didn't put it in that offensive fashion. But after a number of hours, during which numerous requests to interview a named barrister, who ought to say to be to consult a named barrister, who isn't mentioned uh, by name, were refused, um, the question was asked, by whom were the letters written that were found on your person? And what happened at that point was basically that Emmett uh, cracked. He said, how may I prevent those letters being brought forward? And he then said, apparently without, he said, I will do anything to prevent those letters being brought forward. Um, the government still didn't appear to understand precisely the nature of his uh, sensibilities with regard to the letters. But the record of the meeting, which was kept by a man called Alexander Marsden, the undersecretary, in other words, a high official, he said, Mr. Emmett became a good deal distressed. So you can imagine the scene. You can imagine the government men, they know they've got him, but they don't quite know why. And they obviously have to proceed uh, very tentatively. And they started saying things like, well, you know, we have to bring forward those letters. They're evidence of treason against you. And then the Attorney General, Standish O'Grady, said, they're also evidence of treason against whoever wrote them. And at that point, Emmett became utterly distressed and told these interrogators, firstly, that the letters were written by a woman. And then he made an un a very definitely pre-feminist attempt to exculpate Sarah Curran. He said, you know yourselves, gentlemen, when a woman says something, it's only opinion. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and he said, I swear that person had no real intentions. And then he appealed to a sort of a contemporary sense of honor. He said, he said With political, despite political differences, people may have the same idea of what is owed to a gentle and virtuous female. Well, this was getting very, it is extraordinary that the government did not at that stage realize um, precisely what was happening. But uh, we have their own word for it in their correspondence that they didn't. Emmett was brought back to prison, Kilmainham prison, um, where he was closely watched by the governor, a Dr. Trevor. Almost unbelievably, two days later, he wrote a letter to Sarah Curran under his, her own name at his father or father's address, which is in Ratfarnham. Uh, needless to say, the place was rapidly raided by the ever diligent Major Sir. And Sarah either collapsed or staged a collapse, during which her sister burnt a good deal of the considerable volume of incriminating correspondence. The government, needless to say, th this was regarded by the government 
when they knew it was she, as a curiosity rather than anything else. Her letters were sent to the Home Secretary and to the King himself. Not to say, look at the great evidence we've got, but to say, would you look at what this woman did? And the King wrote to the Home Secretary saying, Mamzelle seems to be a true disciple of Mary Wollstonecraft, the sort of proto-feminist. So there we were, happy days in Dublin Castle. McNally's correspondence then became daily and twice daily. And he said, Emmett is in a pathetic position. He thinks of nothing else but how to get Sarah out of this. He said, and the deal was struck, not between Emmett and the prison governor, although there seemed to be some approaches of that kind, but between McNally and the Crown. And McNally uh, claimed uh, subsequently uh, to his son, because he could hardly speak about it to anybody else, that he had tried to do his best for Emmett. But if he did, it was entirely in doing a deal uh, behind the scenes rather than in the, in the courtroom. In any event, the arrangement was come to that all the correspondence could be introduced in evidence. But the government said, and they stuck to this, that they would not identify Sarah Curran and that they would say that these letters had been written by a brother conspirator. And Wickham, the Chief Secretary, he records this arrangement in a letter to the Home Secretary and he underlines the word brother so that he's under no um, misapprehension about its significance. So the, the next thing that happened in this tortuous history is that Philpot Curran withdrew as his main counsel. Now, in a way, he had to do that. It damaged his reputation hugely in nationalist circles, but he could hardly have defended Emmett with the threat of his daughter being exposed as a major part of the case. He wrote Emmett a letter, which is set out in full in Professor Patrick Gagan's uh, remarkable life of Emmett, and it is cool in tone, to say the least. Emmett was moved to reply that a man with the coldness of death on him need not be made to feel any other coldness. Uh, Philpot Curran certainly tried to look after his daughter because in a nodly written paragraph, he said, he said, if the young woman's, this is how he referred to the daughter because of course he didn't want to use her name, if the young woman's indiscretions are not brought forward by the crown, which from their humanity, I believe they will not be. In other words, he too had done a deal with the uh, Crown. That was no doubt the price of his withdrawing his counsel. He said to Emmett, you may think that there is no point from your own point of view in discussing them with your agent or counsel. In other words, he didn't want Sarah's uh, unfortunate deeds um, discussed even with McNally and uh, and McNally Jr., the solicitor, he was trying to keep them uh, quite quiet. Um, that was the first uh, thing that happened. The second thing that happened was that there were numerous conferences with uh, McNally, in which case, throughout which he behaved with uh, really appalling uh, hypocrisy. And uh, he must have gone straight from the conferences to write his report to the uh, castle. And then, as I say, five days before the trial began, he was um, given £100, the first of two payments of that sum, uh, by way of special bonus. It seems to me from the dates that uh, he got the first £100 the day after he confirmed that the trial would be a walkover. And the trial was a walkover, uh, despite the fact that it appeared to need seven counsel to present the prosecution case. There were good manning levels in those days. Uh, the uh, uh, defence, as well as the uh, departed Curran and McNally, also had uh, a barrister not apparently corrupted uh, called Peter Burroughs, whose name appeared window, the stained glass window on the landing of the uh, library steps in the King's Inns. Uh, and Burroughs is another major source for what happened. The 
The letters were front and centre, as they say, of the Attorney General's opening address. When Burroughs made an attempt to cross-examine one of the witnesses, Major Sir, the police chief, um, Lord Norbury said something which sounds so fair-minded and was quite different uh, in reality. He said, if the prisoner wants any more of these letters read, he may at any time. And Burroughs replied equally cryptically that the prisoner was fully aware of that and would keep it in his mind throughout the trial. So the deal had been done. It has to be reminded that one has to be reminded that Emmett had himself, at least in general terms, proposed the deal. He said, if I can prevent these letters being brought forward, I will do anything. And perhaps it would have been odd if the Crown hadn't um, uh, taken advantage of that. Very few witnesses as to fact were called. But a major legal issue did uh, come up, which I'll put as simply as possible. The charge was under the Treason Act uh, of 1351, almost 500 years before, even at that date. Uh, it was famously ambiguous, and its ambiguities were much discussed uh, in the Caseman trial and in the posthumous appeal, which he was generously granted. Um, the nature of treason was not what now appears in the Constitution. You'd be aware that treason is the only crime defined in the Constitution. The nature of treason was an entirely mental one. It was compassing the death of the king. In other words, planning or contemplating the death of the king. Now, that wasn't too easy to prove. The king at the time was George III. George III was in England. George III had not visited Ireland. His son, George IV, visited frequently because his mistress was Lady Cunningham and she lived in Slane, so he had to. Uh, be there, but his father, who was known amiably as Farmer George, had never been in Ireland at all. So the nature of the treason trial was this. The actus reus, so to speak, was compassing the death of the king. Overt acts, like being armed and reading out a proclamation and having lots of pikes and explosives, they were only incidental matters from which, however, the intention to kill the king could be inferred like the overt acts in a charge of conspiracy. But the legal difficulty was this. Ten years before, less than ten years before, in 1794, a group of English radicals uh, led by a man called Hardy, they were members of an allegedly subversive organisation called the London Corresponding Society. They had been tried for treason in London. It was... Uh, a fine uh, trial uh, run before Chief Justice Eyre with Lord Eldon as for the prosecution and Thomas Erskine for the defence. And it ended with acquittals. Now, how did it end with acquittals? Well, Erskine conceded that, uh, I'm sorry, Eldon said that if you were planning a revolution to depose the king, then according to the ordinary experience of mankind, that wouldn't end well for the king. Don't forget, this was within a decade of the French Revolution. He was saying, be sensible. A deposed king gets killed. Where is Louis? Where is Marie Antoinette? Uh, Erskine agreed that the jury could come to that conclusion. But he said it was a matter for the jury. And unless they drew the inference from an intention to depose the king, that there was an intention to kill him, then they had to be acquitted. And the Lord Chief Justice, whose name was Eyre, uh, charged the jury in that sense, and Hardy and some 30-odd other defendants were acquitted. But that uh, courtesy wasn't extended in Ireland. Lord Norbury simply told the jury that if they accepted the facts of the case, as alleged by the prosecution, he was directing them as a matter of law that that amounted to treason. And Mr. Leonard McNally raised no issue at all 
This was, the, 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 the Hardy case was not mentioned. At that time, the Lord Chancellor of Ireland, there was a man called Reedsdale, a, a direct ancestor of Nancy Mitford, uh, Sir John Mitford. He had been Solicitor General of England and had been one of the prosecution team at the Corresponding Society trial. So naturally he knew of that, but it was never referred to by either defence or prosecution. I don't know whether Leonard McNally knew about it. He may have thought that there was no point in looking up recent cases, less than 10 years old, after all, um, since he wasn't going to be making any use of them anyway. So that was the legal issue. There was a convoluted, and I must say little used, procedure for appeal, which is basically a reference of a point of law to the general, to the court of King Be King's Bench and Bank, but McNally made no attempt to use it. Now, the year after the English case, William Pitt's government passed an act uh, of 1795 in which they said, you didn't anymore, as you had to since 1351, you didn't anymore have to intend to kill the king. It was enough if you intended to aid his enemies. And that was obviously a lot easier to, uh, to prove, and it would certainly have been proved from the documents, because Emmet had corresponded with the French government as though he was an equal potentate. But that act didn't apply in Ireland. We know it didn't apply in Ireland, and we know that it had been held not to apply in Ireland, because during the Brother Shears trial, another event that took place in this very room, um, Philpot Curran, who was defending the Shears, raised that there was only one witness for the prosecution, the famous felon setter, Captain Armstrong. Philpot Curran took the point that by the statute, which was then only two years old, um, there had to be at least two witnesses. But the judge was a remarkable character called Lord Carleton. He said that statute doesn't apply in Ireland. Later, uh, in 1848, when the Treason Felony Act was passed, the beginning of the Act recited, as they put it, that there were doubts about whether the 1795 Act uh, applied in Ireland. Nothing, I mention this only to show that both from a factual point of view and from a legal point of view, there were things that might have been done for Emmett. It's very likely that he would have been convicted of the people who were charged and tried before Emmett's trial came on, there were perhaps 40 of them, uh, but there had been two or three acquittals. So it wasn't impossible, but the fact is that no attempt was made. It must be said that Emmett himself was complicit in this. Um, when Peter Burroughs attempted to cross-examine one of the witnesses, Emmett stopped her from doing so with the sadly prophetic words, Pray do not attempt to defend me, it is quite in vain. So the, the other aspect of the, of the trial uh, was of course the famous speech. From a technical point of view, the speech was an allocutus. In other words, the clerk put to the uh, prisoner, had he anything to say in point of law, why sentence shouldn't be pronounced on him. But it had been customary for centuries and for a long time afterwards to permit the prisoner to say whatever he wanted. Um, Norbury interrupted Emmett quite uh, frequently to say that he was not now talking about law. Um, but Emmett simply continued, and there didn't seem to be, the, I should have said, Norbury sat with two other judges. There didn't seem to be the stomach to silence him until the very end. Most of what he said was attempts to exculpate himself for wanting to hand Ireland over to France instead of to England. And he went into that in what must have been tedious detail. But the, um, the, the conclusion, the, the famous conclusion, uh, so to speak, was worth it all from a, a reputational point of view. Um, he declared, uh, well, you, you, you know what he said, I'm sure, that uh, not until his country took its place amongst the nations of the earth could his epitaph be written. And this made something of a... You must remember, too, that Emmett, this trial had been going on all day. They didn't seem to have comfort breaks. And Emmett had been sitting in the dock quite heavily chained. 
uh, are not fed or watered at any time. Um, and the, the, the speech was uh, a sensation even immediately after its delivery. There's always been a issue as to what exactly did Emmett say. Did he really produce those uh, wonderfully complicated sentences off the top of his head? Emmett was quite an orator. He'd been a major protagonist in the College Historical Society before he was expelled from Trinity. And it seems likely that he could. Um, various historians of a, and journalists of a certain point of view uh, have deprecated the idea that Emmett spoke as he is alleged to have spoken. Um, Roy Foster declared that he said nothing except some silly attitudinizing. Um, Kevin Myers, who as you might imagine is not an admirer of Emmett, uh, he pointed out that the nationalist version of the speech was taken by, by a shorthand writer called Ridgeway, at least as so described. But uh, Meyer said that they didn't have shorthand in that time. Now, that's absolutely untrue. The first textbook on shorthand was written as long ago as the 1580s. Uh, Ridgeway's father had produced a textbook on shorthand in the 1750s. So it was certainly a well-established art. There was always, however, what I might call the Christian Brothers version uh, and the Daily Telegraph version, which is a few halting uh, sentences. Uh, Emmett was executed the next day. Um, I couldn't put out of my mind that what did the law library of the time, how did they react to that? I could imagine somebody saying, do you want to get lunch in the Lord Edward and take in the execution on the way back? <laughs> but no doubt there were some who felt more, uh, more, more sensitively on the topic. Although the sentence pronounced was hanging, drawing and quartering, which involved, if it were to be literally right, castration and the extraction of inner organs. But that had been uh, mitigated in fact, but not in law to hanging followed by decapitation, which you imagine is a much more manageable um, uh, quiatus. Uh, in the aftermath of the trial, uh, a very remarkable thing happened, at least I think it's a very remarkable thing. Emmett, when being taken out of Kilmainham jail, said he wanted to write a letter. And he was allowed to do so, and this letter was to William Wickham, the chief secretary. And extraordinarily, it's a letter of thanks, appreciation, and exoneration. He said that he knew, he, he said that Wickham's government, the government of which he was chief secretary, that is, was mild. But he said he felt that that was a reason why he had to stage a military demonstration, lest its mildness seduce uh, the people into compliance. He said that he knew that Wickham had been blamed for not having sussed out the plan before the, the, it broke out on the 23rd of July, but he said that no one could have done so because of the extreme tightness of their security. And he told Wickham that he could show that to anybody he liked. Um, the effect of this on Wickham was quite extraordinary, a bit like the denouement of a Graham Greene novel. He resigned his office. Uh, before Christmas of that year, and he said uh, in private correspondence that he did so because he couldn't continue in a position which required him to hunt down people like Emmett and Russell. Um, he also said that, although he gave ill health as the reason, he said that the government knew quite well that he was as healthy as a trout, and that he would be thought to be morbid or perhaps even actually insane to allow himself to be so effective. And he said he also knew that he would never get another job in government. And apart from a post in the Treasury during the few months the Whig government of 1806-7 lasted, he never did. The source for all this is a letter that Wickham wrote to a friend who asked him for a copy of Emmett's letter uh, more than 30 years later. And he sent him a copy of it saying, it has been my constant companion 
for the long period of 32 years. And he expressed that view, uh, apparently, in conversation to anybody who brought up the topic. He went to the length of saying that had he been an Irish man, he would, he would most certainly have joined Emmett. But this was regarded, as he suspected, as evidence of insanity <laughs> by uh, his, his former employers. And it is a most remarkable thing because uh, Wickham was not an impressionable man. As I say, he'd been a spymaster for 10 years. He wasn't used to straight dealing. He wasn't a person you would, might have thought would have been impressed by Ebbett's personal qualities. Um, nevertheless, you might think that Emmett, who was notoriously fastidious about his epitaph, might have been happy with uh, Wickham's summary. It's interesting just to say a word or two about what happened to the various characters afterwards. Um, as you might expect, William Cunningham Plunkett did far the best out of all this. He was Solicitor General by the end of the year. He was Attorney General within two years. He continued to be Attorney General with brief intervals until the uh, early 1820s. He was in Parliament almost all that time. He was a devoted supporter of a man called George Canning, who became Prime Minister of England but only lived six months in the year 1827. So devoted was Canning to Plunkett that when he was made Prime Minister, he determined to make Plunkett master of the roles in England and his head of the Chancery Division. Now, although there's a long history, including Reedsdale, of English lawyers coming to take up legal positions in Ireland. The English judges did not think that applied the other way. And the entire chancery bench said they would resign if that happened. So it couldn't happen. So Wickham, I'm sorry, um, Canning had a big problem. He'd already made Plunkett appear in anticipation of his promotion. So he had to find him some job, but there was none. In that emergency, the government approached Lord Norbury, who was still Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, but he was now 88 years old. <laughs> they said to him, uh, would your lordship think of retiring and enjoying your golden years? And he said, no, no. He said, I've come to an age in my life, he said, when I couldn't contemplate reducing my income. <laughs> so the, 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 the government gritted their teeth, and there must have been a lot of teeth gritting, and they came back to him and said, we will pay you your salary for life if you retire now. He said two things. The first was, can I have that in writing? It's <laughs> happened. And the second thing is, I'll speak to my wife. And his wife, who needs to say, well, she, there had been but one wife, shows she was as old as himself. And he came back and said, my wife says, She's tired of being a baroness. She'd like to be a countess. In other words, they would have to make him Norbury an earl. What happened was, Norbury had been attorney general immediately prior to the union. He was also he was acting, in effect, as the whipper in for votes pro-union. The government told him that if, um, if he passed the union, they'd make him a judge and a peer. But they weren't, wouldn't put that in right. So he got a wizard wheeze. He said, put it this way, make my wife a baroness. So she was made a baroness, and four years later, he was made a baron. Pre-union, immediately post-union Ireland, was a uniquely corrupt place. In any event, they did make old Norbury uh, an earl. They made his wife a countess. And he lived on, although he was 88 years old when that deal was come to, he lived on for another seven years. He's a man whom it's hard to admire, but in a curious way, hard to dislike. He died in the year 17, uh, I'm sorry, in the year 1832, in his house in Eli Place. His neighbour, Lord Earn, was also parlously ill. Norbury, a day or two before he died, sent a servant to inquire, how's Lord Earn? And the servant came back and said, bad news, my lord, not expected to live. And Norbury said, be gob, it'll be a dead heat between us. <laughs> As I say, some, uh, he, he was, however, a man completely uh, without principle. The other person whose 
later life is worth thinking about is Thomas More, the poet and songwriter. Thomas More had been a friend of Emmett's in college, but Thomas had no truck with politics. He didn't get involved with any of that sort of thing. He too was called before Lord Clare's visitation of Trinity and he announced his absolute loyalty uh, to the Union settlement. However, he was very distressed. He certainly created the posthumous legend of Emmet by the songs which he wrote. She is far from the land where a young hero sleeps and lovers around her are sighing and so on. Uh, Keats, uh, Shelley, Southey and Berlioz wrote poems about Emmet in the immediate aftermath. He became very rapidly a romantic hero. The speech was in an American uh, compilation of oratory within, uh, well, by 1809. Um, in other words, the posthumous reputation management was extraordinary. Moore was, uh, he was extremely successful in his literary and musical career, but he wasn't a man of high moral fibre, so to speak. In about the year 1840, he had lunch with the, uh, or perhaps it was dinner, with a man called Lord Morfus, who was then the Lord Lieutenant. And when everybody had had quite a bit to drink, he dared to say this in one of the major acts of courage of his life. He said he was glad that he had lived long enough to propose a toast to the memory of Robert Emmett at the Lord Lieutenant's table. And with that ironic tribute, I suppose Emmett uh, had to be content. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the trial of Robert Emmett, delivered by the late Mr Justice Adrian Hardiman as part of the Green Street Lecture Series in 2016. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more of these lectures, log on to lawlibrary.ie or wherever you get your podcasts.